Well, our text this morning is Titus chapter 2, so if you'd turn in your Bibles to that text, we're going to continue our study in Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 will be the focus of our study both this time and the next part of our study. We won't be able to get through that, that paragraph this morning, but we will cover a lot. This is a very profound paragraph as Paul brings his ethical instructions, at least those in chapter 2, to a close. He grounds them in some very, very rich doctrine And so we want to take our time going through the very precious and profound things that we find in this paragraph. But to set our our study up, we need to to remind ourselves of what we've covered so far and how this fits within Paul's logic, especially when we look at chapter 2. There's a particular flow, a logic, a structure to this chapter that is important to recognize. He begins in chapter 2, verse 1, with this introductory statement for these ethical instructions that he gives to Titus, who would then pass this on to the new believers there in the island of Crete. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now, he says that, as you remember, in response to what he discussed in the second half of chapter 1, which was the the problem of the false teachers who even in that early stage of the history of the church on the island of Crete, those false teachers were seeking to undermine the church and to introduce that which was unhealthy. And so Paul now transitions in 2 verse 1 and says, you, Titus, speak those things, teach those things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Now, at the end of this section, in chapter 2, verse 15, if you look at your Bibles, you're going to see the second bookend here as he, as he encapsulates this ethical teaching. He, we're going to see it in verse 15 where he says in much the same language as he did in verse 1, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We'll look at that text next time, but that's the second bookend. And in between, we have nestled in there a a lot of ethical instruction. We see that primarily in verses 2 to 10. We've gone through this already where we see Paul describe the content of sound doctrine. And there we saw that household code that Paul gives for those households of faith that had been established and were still needing strengthening and structure there on the island of Crete, and he goes through and he deals with the expectations for elderly men, then for elderly women, then for young women, then for young men, and then for slaves. And then he grounds all of that ethical instruction in a very important set of sentences, or actually it's one sentence, a set of uh, verses in verses 11 to 14. We see the grounding for this ethical instruction, and that's what will be the focus both this morning and the next time we're in this study. But what's interesting to note with this structure, by the way, is that it departs a little from Paul's norm. Paul typically begins with the indicatives and then moves from the indicatives to the imperatives. And you see that, for example, the well-known structure that we see in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The first three chapters are all filled with indicatives And then he gets to the imperatives beginning in chapter 4. But in this chapter of Titus, he reverses the order. What we see here essentially is that Paul 
begins with the imperatives, at least in chapter 2. He begins with the imperatives and deals with all of those instructions all the way from 2 to 10. A lot of imperatives there, a lot of exhortation included in all of those instructions. But now in verses 11 to 14, we have the indicatives. Now Paul grounds all of that ethical instruction in historical reality, in transcendent realities, in what God has done. And it's very important because if you would look at the Greco-Roman world of the day, there was a lot of ethical instruction. The philosophers prided themselves in, 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 in exhorting and teaching in some of the same things that the apostle Paul does. But Paul does not want Titus or the the inhabitants there on Crete to think in any way that his ethical instructions are just the same as they would get from the philosophers, from those wandering teachers who would go from city to city with their own version. Instead, Paul is very definitive here in explaining that his ethical instructions are grounded in transcendent and historical truths, and that's why we need to spend this time in verses 11 to 14. Let's look at that text and read through it, and and then I'll break it up into the structure that we'll organize our thoughts around this morning and next time. Paul writes this in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, as we uh, reflect on this text and organize our our thoughts around what Paul presents here, I want to I want to break it up into three important truths that we find here in the text about the key idea that is that runs from the very beginning of this paragraph to the end, and it, it, that key idea is the word grace. And so we're going to see in verse eleven the achievement of grace. That's our first observation about this very important concept, the achievement of grace. Then in verses 12 and 13, the enablement of grace, we'll see what grace does once it has come to bring salvation. We'll see what grace does, verses 12 to 13, the enablement of grace. And then next time, we'll see the culmination of this wonderful text, and we'll look at the mediator of grace in verse 14, where Paul kind of brings it to this this climax at the end of verse 13, where he speaks of Christ Jesus, but goes into this amazing uh, digression to explain in greater detail exactly who is this Christ Jesus and how has he worked in order to make this grace available. So the achievement of grace, the enablement of grace, and the mediator of of grace. Or you could put it this way, what grace procures, what grace promotes, and why grace is possible. Let's look at the first of these, the achievement of grace, verse 11. 
Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, as we look at that text immediately, we see that 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 conjunction with which joins what follows with what Paul has just said. And what Paul has just said in that context has been some exhortation that he has given to slaves. He says this in verses 9 and 10, urge slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And then immediately after giving that ethical instruction, he then, he then transitions to provide the grounds, the basis for this instruction, but not only the instruction to the slaves, What Paul does here, beginning in verse 11, is provide the basis, the ground for all of the ethical instruction that goes all the way back to to verse 2, where he begins addressing the older men. And he says this in in the grounding of that, uh, that, that ethical instruction, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, this is so very important, the grace of God. And Paul emphasizes this because, as I said, there was much ethical instruction in that day. And, of course, if you look at the ethical instruction, that instruction would use some of the same language even that Paul does in Titus chapter 2. It was all based on human effort, on human striving. But Paul would have none of that. And so to ground this ethical instruction, he immediately focuses on this key concept that will, that will dominate everything all the way to the end of verse 14. It is the grace of God. And as we know, this theme is, is a very important one in all of Paul's letters. It's the key concept of the entire paragraph. In fact, if you would look at that paragraph and seek to summarize it in just one word, it would be the word grace. And this one word, grace, was the explanation for how those who were liars, evil, and gluttons made God's own people. This was how those were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, the true testimony of the Cretan people, how they could come to know salvation, to know God's saving grace, his forgiveness, that they could come to know the life that would come through Jesus Christ, how they could be transformed even in this present age and be prepared in this present age, for the age to come. How could that be possible? It is all due to the grace of God. And so we need to camp out here because even though we may look at that Cretan culture full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons and think, well, that's very different than ours today, the reality of it is, is no, there is no one who does good, not even one, and all of us, all of us are dependent upon this concept of grace, this then for a moment. What is God's grace? Well, we can start by looking at God's goodness. I think it's important to distinguish just a little bit God's grace from his goodness. Let's begin with goodness. What does it mean when we say God is good, that we describe God and his perfections as being a good God, a God who is perfectly good, infinitely good, inherently good, eternally good. Well, God's goodness refers to his disposition to act on behalf of the 
the good well-being of what he creates. It is who God is, that he, he has this disposition, this character to act on behalf of creation's well-being. But that's a little bit different than grace. Goodness is what God is to everyone because it is his disposition to act on behalf of his creation's welfare. But God's grace is a little different in this. God's grace refers to his disposition to pour out favor on those who are inherently unworthy. It is more than just goodness. What makes grace so amazing is not that it is given to those who merely lack merit. God's grace is so amazing because it is given to those who are inherently undeserving. One of the ways you could look at it is this. We know of of merit and demerit. And there is a difference between lacking merits and possessing demerits. There's a difference. If you lack merit, it simply means that you don't have internally that. But it doesn't say anything more than that. You just don't have that which is commendable. But when you have demerits, it means that you possess internally that which is contemptible. It means you possess that which, that, that which warrants, that which merits punishment, that which merits justice. And so when we talk about God's grace, we're talking about disposition to give favor to those who do not deserve it. Not only to those who don't possess merit, but to those who actually possess demerits. So at the center of grace is this concept of undeserved favor. Grace, those who who receive grace, those who are recipients of grace, it's never bestowed to them on the basis of their worthiness. To those who receive grace, they receive it in the place of justice. Those who receive grace do not receive what is fair. They receive something which is different. It is grace. The one who receives grace is the one who has no rightful claim on it. It's the one who has no no say in it. He has no right to receive it. Grace is never a payment made by God, something that is admirable or worthy of compensation. That's not grace. Grace is never a payment. As John Feinberg stated, he stated it this way in describing what God's grace is. He says, quote, if God or anyone else were obligated, obliged to give grace, it would no longer be grace. Blessing would simply be a matter of justice. Now, with that in mind, go to a text like Romans chapter 6, verse 23. We, we have the concept of merit and grace put in, in wonderful contradistinction in that text. Paul says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what is merited by all who sin. The wages, the fairness in response to sin is death. That's what is rightly earned by sin. 
But Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grace is the free gift. It's not even something that gifts often in the giving of gifts. There are other things attached to it, family members. There is an inherent worthiness of parents to give their children gift because their children are their offspring. There is an inherent worthiness there or a husband to give his wife a gift. Heather, don't, you didn't hear that. Um, yeah. But there is that, is that connection that there. But when we talk about God's grace, there is nothing, not one iota of merit. There is no right to it. It is completely unmerited. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavink put it this way. He said, quote, Grace is the voluntary, unrestrained, and unmerited favor that God shows to sinners, and that, instead of the verdict of death, brings them righteousness and life. Now, with that in mind, let's return to what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared. Now, what does it mean that the grace of God has appeared? That verb to to appear has the idea of to make an appearance, to take that which is previously unseen, invisible, and manifest it so that it's now tangible, it's visible, it's concrete. It essentially means to take that which is abstract, make it concrete. Now, The question is, how do you take something like grace and make it appear? How do you take an abstract concept and a wonderful one at that, but how do you make it visible? And the answer to that, even though Paul does not extrapolate on it here, he assumes it. The answer to that question is this. Grace makes its manifest in a historical person. What Paul is referring to here in this indicative, he is referring in a, in a veiled but a very much intentional way, he is referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation of Christ, grace is made manifest. Just think, for example, of John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among, it, among us. And we see his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or John 1, 16 to 17. For the fullness we have all received and grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized. They were made manifest through Jesus Christ. What Paul is referring to here, without mentioning the name, he's going to get to the name in just a little bit, but he's referring here to the incarnation of Christ. He's referring to Christ's first advent. This is the grace of God, and this grace has appeared. Now, in that appearance, what has happened? Paul then makes this statement. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. You could say it this way, the 
grace of God has appeared salvifically. The grace of God has appeared with power to save, effectiveness to redeem. That's how the grace of God has appeared. The idea here is on its efficacy. The idea is on its ability. It is not some kind of grace of God that is that is weak or uncertain. This is the grace of God that is powerful to achieve everything that God has determined to achieve through it. It has appeared, and as it has appeared, it has the power to save. Now, instantly, that raises the question with the phrase that follows. It has appeared bringing salvation to all men. And not a, a little amount of, of ink has been spent on this particular issue. What does Paul mean when he says the grace of God has salvifically appeared, efficaciously appeared to all men? And two responses to this. Either it is a statement of, of uh, universality, a statement of universalism, that the grace of God has shown itself powerful to save all universally, or it refers to the power of God's grace to save all impartially. And you might say, well, how, where do you get that from? Well, the right answer is actually that second option. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men impartially. And here's the reason. It's the context that helps us out on this very, very important text. Because what has Paul just been dealing with? As he starts this very important section, he's still in the middle of this grounding of his ethical instruction. The ethical instruction is still very much on his mind. He is thinking of different categories. We've seen it already. We've we've seen that Paul addressed the older men and gave them ethical instructions. He addressed the older women. Ethical instructions were unique to them. He addressed the younger women and gave them ethical instructions that were unique to them, and and then the younger men, and, and then he gets to the slaves, and he gives them particular ethical instructions. So what is the basis for all of these unique ethical instructions for these different categories, social categories, age categories, male and female? What is the basis? The basis is... God's efficacious grace as it appears to all of those categories. In other words, there's not one of those categories, despite the breadth that is involved in chapter 2, verses 2 to 10, in all of that breadth of category, there's not one category that is left out. In fact, many many commentators will point specifically to the last category, that the Apostle Paul addressed. What was it? The slaves. And in the Greco-Roman world of the day, the slaves were at the very, very bottom. There there was really nothing that was worse than than being a slave. And so for the the contemporary society, the the, the slaves were, were just a little bit better than the animals. 
And so immediately following up on, on Paul's ethical instruction to the slaves in particular, he brings in this basis and says that including with these ethical instructions to the slaves, the grace of God has appeared efficaciously, bringing salvation even to them, meaning that the slaves have been saved just like the older, the younger women and the younger men in the same way. And thus, the same grace applies to them for salvation and the same grace applies to them for enablement. John Calvin explains it this way. He said, Paul did not mean in this passage or in the other one of 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, anything else than that the great are called by God, though they are, uh, are unworthy of it. And that men of low condition, though they are despised, are nevertheless adopted by God, who stretches out his hand to receive them. Thus, in this passage, after speaking of the poor slaves who are not reckoned to belong to the rank of men, he says that God did not fail on that account to show himself compassionate towards them and that he wishes that the gospel should be preached to those to whom men do not deign to utter a word. The grace of God has appeared impartial to men, to women, to men and to slaves. In fact, Calvin makes this reference to another pastoral epistle. If you turn there for just a moment, Paul says much the same thing, and that text too has been the source of a lot of debate. Let's just go there for a minute. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings Different kinds of of praying, that those different kinds of prayers be made on behalf of what? All men. And and then he goes on in in, in verse 2 to do the similar thing to to what he's done in Titus chapter 2. He takes a category of men for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And it's good to pray for these kinds of men. It's acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And is there a universalism there? Paul isn't emphasizing that. Instead, he is emphasizing the fact that praying is to be done for all men, including this category of kings, this category of all who are in authority. Paul is speaking of categories. And so that's why he says, even in verse 4, he desires all these categories, this impartiality to be saved. And that certainly even refers to Paul himself. If you turn one chapter earlier in chapter 1, you read of Paul's own testimony in verses 15 and 16. And even a man like him, very religious, well-trained Judaizer, one who persecuted the church, he states this about his testimony. He says, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement 
deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And now he refers to a particular category in which he is just one among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as, as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience for those in life. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all these categories. And that reminds us that no matter what category you are in, an old man, a young man, an old woman, a young woman, regardless of your social status, The same grace of God applies to you. You're saved in the same way and by the same compassion of God. There is no difference. That is the achievement of grace. It is powerful to save. Now let's look at the enablement of grace. Verses 12 and 13. Let's begin actually in verse 12 as we look at what grace enables. He begins by saying this. He says, this grace has appeared, and now he's going to describe what this grace has done now that it has brought salvation. What does it do? He says, it has appeared instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, what's important to note is this, this grace of God, this this unmerited favor is not only efficacious for salvation, but it is also efficacious for transformation even in the present age. He says this grace has come instructing us. This verb for instructing is actually the same verb from which we get pedagogy. This grace is our pedagogue. It means to provide instruction for informed and responsible living. It means to educate and and to train. In fact, what's interesting here is that Paul doesn't use the normal verb for to teach, didasco. Instead, he uses this particular verb, which is a more rare verb for Paul to, to communicate the idea of teaching. He uses this particular verb to place emphasis on the manner of how grace instructs. It isn't just that grace has content, but this grace that has been made manifest in the life of Christ in his first advent is the kind of grace that gives education and guidance and discipline in a way that is similar to how a pedagogue works, particularly as we think of parents. In the Greco-Roman world, the parents were, were, were involved in the instruction of children. And, and, and so the idea was that the parents and parental guidance was, was central to the children's development. That's particularly a Hebrew concept. If you go to the book of Proverbs, for example, how often Solomon exhorts his son and says, My son, listen. My son, heed. My son, obey. That's the kind of pedagogy that's involved here. This is grace that is not just transferring knowledge, but it is a a kind of guidance that provides as of a loving parent. 
Paul continues, this grace has instructed us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. Now, following Paul's normal practice, he, he takes up this concept of both negative and positives. We see it elsewhere in his epistles where he talks about putting off and putting on. And he does the same thing here, although he does not use the same language. But notice both the, the negative and the positive, the to deny and to live. And let's look first at what Paul says in terms of to deny. First of all, it, it, the verb to deny means to refuse to pay attention to, or as the NIV says, to say no to. It has the, the idea of to disregard or to denounce, to disregard or to denounce. And Paul follows that up with two things in particular that grace teaches us, guides us to say no to. Two things, very important. First of all, ungodliness. Ungodliness. That word refers to that which is sacrilegious, that which is unaccountable to God, that which is godless, that does not take him into consideration, that does not put him as the foundation and as the authority in life. It's godlessness in thought and action, a lifestyle that manifests rebellion and irreverence, a, a lifestyle of independence, a lifestyle of I will do it my own way, I will be my own judge, I will determine my own law. And Paul says the grace of God and efficacious to bring salvation, and as it brings salvation, it instructs us in the present life, this practice of saying no. And that's important because even today, in, in broader, broader evangelicalism, you'll, you'll hear of what's called antinomianism. That, you know, it, it's wrong to think that there are things that the Christian must not do. That that's oppressive. And we're to instead just lift people up by encouragement and say, the grace of God has covered it all. Enjoy your life. Rest in it. Stop striving. And yet notice what the grace of God instructs. It instructs us to say no, to renounce. There's putting off that is fundamental to what it brings to our lives. And first of all, it, it calls us to denounce or renounce ungodliness, a lifestyle that, that lives its own way regardless of what God has said. And you know what that's like. We all struggle with it as Paul acknowledges here, that, that the grace of God is needed even in our saved lives to instruct us to say no to these things. It is those moments where we know what the word of God says. We know God's will for our conduct, our decisions. And yet we say in the face of that, no, I'm going to do my own thing. In the moment of that temptation, when, when that, 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 that forbidden fruit is placed there, we in our particular circumstances will say no to God and to his word. And yet Paul says, this is exactly why the grace of God is needed, even to those who are saved, because it is this grace of God that teaches us that we don't say no to God, 
but we say no to the temptation. And more than that, he says it teaches us to say no to, to refuse to pay attention to worldly desires. The term there speaks of that which is uh, of the world, not just in the natural sense. Paul's not talking about physical appetites here, that we're going to say, no, I'm done with eating, never going to eat again. Well, some of us say that. It doesn't last very long. Uh, Unfortunately, too short. Um, That's not what Paul is speaking of here with the term worldly. The term worldly refers to the negative aspect of the world. That which is carnal, that which is fleshly, that which is under the power of the prince of this air. It's speaking of fleshly lust. It's speaking of forbidden desires. Desires for things of God are not appropriate, are not consistent with the Christian life. It even is referring to those desires which may be fine in moderation, but are sinful in excess. The grace of God has come to instruct us how to say no. You can look at it this way. The the grace of God deals with these two things, the root uh, of the remaining flesh in us as well as the results, the fruit of our flesh, that the grace of God is efficacious. And notice Paul is not saying the law of God. He's saying the grace of God is efficacious for teaching us how to renounce both the results of them. But as I said, Paul does not only focus on the negative. He does not just say put off. But in the place of that which is put off, there is something that is to be put on. And what's interesting here in the way that Paul words his language here in the original is that it is this putting on that receives the heightened focus. This is what Paul is getting at. The grace of God has appeared instructing us to live, to live. He's speaking here of our walk. He's speaking here of our, our daily conduct, our practice, our, our way of life. He's speaking here of manifestation, of, uh, of, a, of a pattern. And this manifestation is described in three ways. The grace of God has appeared instructing us to live, number one, sensibly. We've seen that word many times already in this epistle. We saw it all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, where the elder candidates had to be men who were sensible. And that sensibility refers to thoughtful self-control, the ability to exercise good judgment so as not to give in to imbalance and not to be taken into enslavement to the things of this world. It speaks of the mind. We saw that the older men were to be sensible. The older women were to be sensible. The older women were to be The younger women, the younger women were to be sensible. The The younger men were to be sensible. And now Paul says, this is what the grace of God teaches. It teaches how to live this way. Secondly, it teaches us how to live righteously. This deals with right and just actions. Now he's going from that which is a a characteristic of the mind. And now he's dealing with that which is a characteristic of external actions, particularly in relationships. That the grace of God 
teaches us how we are to relate to one another, how we are to interact with one another in terms of one another in, in the body of Christ as well as our neighbors as those in the world. And thirdly, the grace of God has appeared to teach us to live godly. This is the exact opposite of the word ungodliness that was used already in this verse. We are to deny ungodliness because the grace of God teaches us to live godly. This is the kind of lifestyle that's reverent, the kind of lifestyle that that has a deliberate, intentional desire to be God-pleasing, that in the actions of the day and the decisions and the discussions in, in how you conduct your life, that there is this ongoing consciousness that I live in the presence of God and that everything I do is there's not a place where I flee from him, where I have my secrecy, but instead everything I do in his eyes, I do it for him. And that's what it means to be godly. And so we see here that Grace appeared to save us. It was efficacious in that, and it's efficacious to instruct us to live this way, to live this way with respect to ourselves, that sensibility, the control of our thoughts, to live righteously with respect to our behavior to neighbors. This falls under what grace instructs, as well as the third, that vertical dimension of our lives that grace teaches us how to live godly. Now, what's so very important here to remember, and we'll come back to this at the end, is that apart from the grace of God manifest in the coming of Christ and his work that he accomplished through his life and through his atonement to live sensibly and righteously and godly, and to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, apart from the grace of God, those things are impossible. You may think that you can. You may think that it's possible to live this way, to put off certain bad behaviors and to put on sensibility and righteously and godliness. Who would that way? Apart from God, these things are impossible. They are utterly impossible. All that will result will be a self-righteousness, a kind of arrogance and deception that is odious in the sight of God. Now, it's interesting to note as well in verse 12, he says that this is done, this is this lifestyle of sensibility, righteousness, and godliness is in the present age. The grace of God instructs us to live this way in the present age. This is important because so often we think that salvation is just to secure our eternal state. And that it does. In fact, Paul's going to get to that in the next verse. But before he does, he has to deal with the present moment. And the present moment is this. This kind of instruction takes place for a lifestyle in the here and now. Not just sometime in the future to be able to continue to live in the way that you always used to live before grace even came to you. No, it 
is bringing transformation already. It does not live in that old way. It already from the moms begins to prepare you for that life to come. That is what the grace of God does. And that is the evidence that it has come to your life. One commentator says this, God's grace does not simply prepare us for the age to come, but also saves us for the present and teaches us how to live now. And that is encouraging. That brings hope. Why? Because perhaps you you are saved from some very dark and enslaving sins. And you might think, wow, now I still am stuck in this, in this enslavement until finally the Lord takes me home. But the good news is that that grace has not ceased. It is not paused in your life merely to forgive your sins, merely to ensure that you have your future secure in heaven, but that grace is operating in your life even now to liberate you from those very sins. That is Paul's understanding of the Christian life. Now he continues in verse 13, and then he says this, he's not done with with describing how grace has taught us to live. He goes on in verse 13 to add another concept. And this is important because even though he has said that grace brings transformation in the present moment, this is no realized eschatology. This is no idea that that's all that grace does. It just gives us our best life now. Instead, he says, grace teaches us how to live in those ways, sensibly, righteously, godly, but as you live sensibly, righteously, and godly more and more, at the same time, grace is prompting you to look for something more. You're never at that point where you reach, because of grace, you reach that contentment that says, okay, I'm, I'm in that great trajectory. I really am enjoying the growth I'm I'm seeing the fruit of God's grace in my life, and I like it here. That's not what grace will do. Grace will bring fruit, but never a kind of fruit that that is a kind of contentment that says, I've achieved it, I'm happy here, and if this is all I get, that's fine. Not at all. Grace teaches us to look ahead. Notice what he says looking for. Now, that verb is very important. It's used particularly to describe eschatological anticipation. It is used to describe that which is vigilant expectation, something that is catech, something that will change things radically. It's used, for example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, to describe Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Notice that even in that Old Testament saint, the grace of God was operating. But notice how he's described. It it, it uses the same term as is used in our text here. But this Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. Just a few verses later, we read of that wonderful Saint Anna, an Old Testament saint. And at that very moment, 
Jesus is being presented at that very moment. She, that is Anna, came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The verb here emphasizes this vigilant expectation. And notice this vigilant expectation is placed upon two objects in our text. Now, we're going to see that they're closely related, but we need to see how Paul describes them and how they relate to one another. He says, first of all, it's the blessed hope. The blessed hope we are looking for. Grace teaches us to live in such a way as we expect something more. And what we expect is the blessed hope. Paul doesn't just say the hope. He adds this extra term blessed, which is a very powerful term. It it, it is the opposite of barrenness. When we think of something that is blessed, it is the opposite of, of that which is fruitless, that which is barren. Instead, it is that which is sublime. It is that which is transcendent. It is blessed. And Paul uses this, just having used it as well, in 1 Timothy to describe God himself. God himself is described in 1 Timothy 1.11 as the blessed God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Christ who is the blessed one. It's sublime. It's transcendent. We also are looking for the appearing of the glory. Now, this is important. We're going to wrap it up here for today. But notice this as Paul comes back to the concept of appearance. Remember at the beginning of verse 1, he said, The grace of God has appeared. Historical grace of God has appeared. First advent. But Paul says, that's not all that there is. The Christian is not merely one who looks backward. We do indeed look backward. That is when the the grace of God came with healing in its wings to save us from our sin. But the grace of God has come to, to force our focus to the future. We, we are looking for a new appearance an appearance of the glory, Paul says. And when we talk about that word glory, as we will next time, it is a powerful, profound term that is going to describe a person, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. But how Paul uses the language here is essentially to say the same thing. These two phrases, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory are the same thing, but Paul has stated it in two ways to try in some way with human language to describe that which is difficult, if not impossible, to comprehend. The blessed hope, Christ is our blessed hope and Christ, when he comes again, is the appearance of of glory. <laughs> and Siri agrees. That's amazing. That, that, yeah, Siri agrees. Wow. Well, <laughs> someone's listening. That's great. Um, <laughs> let's, let's wrap it up and uh, we'll, we'll finish this wonderful text with even gr- greater more profound truths when we come back.
But a few implications here. Let me ask you some questions. Uh, First of all, has grace brought salvation to you? Now, I want you to think of yourself. Don't think of anyone else in the room, in your family, in your circle. I want you to think of yourself. How do you answer this question? Has the grace of God brought salvation to you? Do you know that unmerited favor? Not as merely an intellectual concept, not because you're able to define it, especially as a result of our study this morning, but do you know it personally? And is it precious to you? Is it that most precious possession that you have that you say, I have been graced. The grace of God has appeared to me in the person of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross. And that grace of God was efficacious in bringing me salvation. How can you answer that question? How do you answer it? Secondly, if it has... Then we ask the second question, and it is this, and it's helpful in order to check your first answer. It's this, has grace enabled transformation in you? of God, it is powerful to bring you salvation, but says if that grace is manifest in your life to save you, it has a result. It brings about enablement. So the question is, has that grace enabled you to start mortifying these sins that have so plagued you? over your life? Have you experienced the liberating power of this grace, that power to say no, and the power instead to live? And then third, if that has happened to you and you say, yes, I have been saved, I've experienced enablement, well then, let me ask you, do you give that credit to the grace of God? This is so very important because some who live for a while in Christ and receive all of these benefits can go into this period where they begin to think that these things are actually their own accomplishments. Even Christians can fall into that where they begin to think, look at what I've done. And they begin to take credit for all the good, for how they are able to say no, and all the sensibility that they have, all the righteous acts that they have, all that godliness that they manifest, and they take credit for it. But Paul teaches us here, oh, believer, that's not you. You were crucified with Christ. It's Christ who lives in you. And that mediator of grace is the one who is producing the transformation in you. Give all glory to him. Let's do that even now. Father, our hearts are filled with gratitude when we come across this simple phrase, the grace of God. And when we dig into it and realize it is a gift that we can never earn, that it is never based on our merit and our worthiness, and that is good news because we don't have that inherent worthiness. And we praise you that you are a God of grace, that it is your disposition to meet those who are unworthy and to give to them this gift. We praise you for that and how it has been so powerful so as to bring us forgiveness of sins and new life 
bring us the promise of eternity in heaven with you. And that it has also brought us what we need, this enablement to now walk the path and walking the path to be able to say no to those things that we could never say no to in the past and to live in such a way that we never could do in the past. Your grace has enabled us. We give all thanksgiving and glory for the victory that we experience. In every moment that we say no to temptation and turn from it, in every way that we manifest the sweet aroma of Christ in our lives, may we always remember that it is your grace and that we turn to you in thanksgiving and say all glory be to you, God, for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.